You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Republican Party in Colorado is at a crossroads. The state GOP will choose its next leader this weekend. And the question is, what kind of difference can that person make in a state that seems to be moving from purple to blue? We're going to get some perspective from the outgoing chairman, Jeff Hayes. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Brian, it's great to be with you. How are you doing this morning? Doing well. So it's a three-way race to succeed you, State Representative Susan Beckman, Congressman Ken Buck, and Sherry Gibson, who's the current vice chair. You've not endorsed anyone, but if you were coming into the position in 2019 rather than leaving it, what would be your top priority? (laughs) Well, it depends on how ignorant or how knowledgeable I am. You know, I've learned a lot in the last two years. And, um, You know, Colorado's Amendment 27 to our Constitution, it places really tight restrictions on fundraising and therefore capabilities of the parties and of the candidates. Um, The soft dollar aspect of Colorado politics is really important. And what I've learned is that, you know, the Democrats have a, a strategic advantage in the soft dollar. They've done a great job over probably the last 16 years in organizing their independent expenditure committees, their issue committees, and things like that much better than we have. So it makes you realize that the hard dollar chairmanship, the office that I'm leaving and that we're talking about, is very limited. Um, You can work really hard, as we did, to raise money, but it's it's really a Bunsen singles game for those of your listeners that understand baseball. And so you have to focus on running – you know, running a good caucus and assembly process, uh, you have to work on having a really uh, uh, functional ground game that you can support that's out there knocking on doors and trying to persuade voters. You really try hard to work in a coordinated way with all of your candidates, <clears throat> and you raise enough money that you can make uh, direct transfers to those candidates, because those are the things that the hard dollar really has to focus on from a communication standpoint because the money is limited, your your outreach, your megaphone is limited. And so um, you have to be very creative in how you get either earn media or uh, expand your social media presence and things like that. So uh, there's a lot to the job that I've learned over the last couple of years. I thought I knew a lot coming in from El Paso County, being the chairman down there, but it's a, it's a different ball game. So, so um, you, I would focus on the things that we can do and try not to worry too much about the things we can't do. So when I ask you that, it sounds like you really put an emphasis on the ground game and on fundraising. Do you think that's uh, what has put Republicans at a disadvantage in this state? No, I think it's on the soft dollar side. I think the Democrats have got a very well orchestrated machine. And on the soft dollar side, Republicans have parts and pieces. We have committees and groups, but we don't really integrate. We don't we don't play as a coordinated unit on the soft dollar side. And that's where the uh, that's probably where 85 percent of the money is spent. And that's where you can do uh, more mass media outreach. That's where you can have fully funded year long ground game and interaction with voters where you can do the more creative messaging. So uh, we're at a deficit on the soft dollar side, more so than on the hard dollar side. I'd like to talk a bit about demographics here. The 2018 election was tough for Colorado Republicans. Democrats now have a trifecta. They control the statewide offices. A Republican congressman lost his seat. Part of the challenge is indeed demographic, as we learned from Courtney Seavers, She's head of research at Magellan Strategies in Colorado, which does polling and campaign consulting. 
And we asked her about new voters in Colorado in 2018. From January to November, 206,000 new registrants registered, of which 18% were Republican, 27% were Democrat, 53% were unaffiliated. So Republican registrants were the smallest slice of the pie, and Seaver says unaffiliated's overall broke for Democrats in the midterms. She says not too long ago it was a different picture in Colorado. If you look back, even even as far back as 2008, Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliated all made up 33% of the vote by registration. In other words, a third Indy, a third Dems, a third GOP. Now, Republicans are actually third on the list. Moving into 2020, even 2022, um, it's going to become just a numeric demographic issue for Republicans moving forward. So, Jeff Hayes, assuming you can't import Republicans, what's the answer to what <laughs> Courtney Seavers is saying? Uh, I, don't, I don't disagree with anything she's saying. We have had an influx of younger people. Younger people tend to vote more uh, Democrat or lean a little bit more left than we would prefer. Um, that's one of the impacts of having uh, or not having a coordinated year-long ground game on the, on the soft dollar side. When you look at the entities that are in Colorado that are registered, or excuse me, that are, uh, well, yeah, I guess registered to register voters, there are nearly 50 that tend to lean more left that register voters, and I think we may have one. It's, uh, we're just getting, we're getting trounced on voter registration and voter interaction efforts. And, uh, you know, neither party is particularly popular right now in Colorado. The Democrats lose registration. Uh, we lose registration. I think unaffiliated voters, um, you know, are, are effectively voting with their feet and saying that I'm not really in love with either one of these groups. Hmm. Uh, it's a challenge for us to get our message. And we feel like our message is more one of freedom and prosperity and things like that vis-a-vis the Democrats. But it's a, it's a challenge to get our message out there. We need creative candidates who are able to uh, convey good policy ideas to voters in ways that they resonate with. We've reported on a new Republican group in Colorado called Friends for the Future, whose mission is to recruit more moderate Republican candidates. Is that the right approach? Well, you know, it is an approach. I think every district has its nuanced um electorate, you know, and, and the people that win there are the ones that can uh, identify and connect with the electorate. And I saw this in El Paso County, for example, the north end of town where I live, you can't lean far enough right. <laughs> but on the southern part of town, it is very much a more moderate uh, middle of the road. It goes back and forth, Democrat to Republican. So it depends on what your district is. The notion that the most conservative candidate or the most liberal candidate always wins, that's that's baloney. Uh, you have to you have to run in your district. Well, let's focus on some issues in particular. Uh, both parties see promise in focusing on health care. The Democrats, of course, say it's partly why they won the U.S. House back. And now you have President Trump saying Republicans should lead on the issue. At the same time, his administration is calling for Obamacare to be struck down entirely now. Uh, is that the Republicans' path back to victory in Colorado, do you think? Well, you know, I think it's a step. Uh, we've always opposed Obamacare, the, uh, the uh, ACA. 
because it's government overreach. I've always thought it was an assault on the federalism concept of our national government. The national government does not have the authority really to go inject themselves in these personal decisions. But it's not enough for Republicans to just say, we don't want to do that. We need to have an alternative. And I think our alternative needs to be free market-based, freedom choice, you know, those kind of things that really should be part of what our party platform's about. You can't just blow it up and not have something uh, to replace it with. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a federal solution for health care, because I don't think that's the right approach anyway, but we need to be able to empower states and local jurisdictions to to allow people to make choices on their own. But again, we we need to have policy alternatives and not just be the party of no. Of course, uh, parts of Obamacare remain popular, uh, specifically the pre-existing conditions aspect of it, of course. Uh, so yes. it, it sounds like you'd you'd be very worried about the idea of Obamacare being struck down without uh, an alternative at the ready. I, I think so. I, okay. There's a first rule of wing walking. You never let go of what you have until you've grabbed onto the next thing. And we need to be able to propose a next thing that not only is consistent with our ideology and our values of freedom, but that actually is going to work for Americans and have some compassion in it. Uh, and I do think that freedom is compassionate, uh, but I'm not a healthcare expert, so I'm not the policy guy. We've got to have smart people that are figuring out smart solutions. President Trump remains wildly popular among Republicans in Colorado. One poll showed around 90 percent support within his own party. Uh, But you conceded to me on election night that the president played a big role in the outcome of the midterms in Colorado and not in a positive way. How does the party deal with that over the next two years? I mean, particularly with regards to the reelection campaign of U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. Democrats running against him point out how often he votes in line with Trump's position. Well, uh, let me just nuance what I said. I I think that the president was on the ballot here. It wasn't anything that he did, I don't think, that affected. The the Democrats were able to nationalize a lot of elections, all the way down to clerk and recorder and county sheriffs and things like that. So, you know, good on them for making a non-issue a major issue, uh, because I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, they just reflexively voted Democrat. But uh, the president is going to be on the ballot again. We have to be um, we have to be supportive, I think, and energetic and enthusiastic about our support of the president going into the 2020 election, but not be so myopically focused and uh, you know fail to understand that not everybody feels that way, and we need to have some really persuasive arguments as to why uh, those swing voters, those unaffiliated, and you know some. Some conservative-leaning Democrats view him as a better option. We have to be very clever about this. And um, he is doing a lot of great things that we need to emphasize. Thank you for being with us, Jeff. Oh, yeah, it's an honor. And uh, thank you for what you do. Jeff Hayes, outgoing chairman of the Colorado Republican Party. On Saturday, they'll choose his successor. Again, among three candidates, State Representative Susan Beckman, Congressman Ken Buck, and the current vice chair of the party, Sherry Gibson. When the U.S. wages war, Colorado feels it intensely. There are some 50,000 active duty and reserve members here. It's why we want you to hear from presidential historian Michael Beschloss now. His latest book is Presidents of War. It's full of revelations about the men in power during wartime, including Lincoln and Johnson. 
Michael Beschloss, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Absolutely delighted. What was your biggest epiphany in writing about presidents and their relationships with war? The biggest one is that we've gotten to the point where a president can almost get us involved in in a war single-handedly and overnight. And that's something the founders were absolutely terrified by because their whole thing was they wanted America to be as different from England as possible. And in English history, if a king became unpopular, he would sometimes generate a reason for an unnecessary war to unite the country and make him more popular. The founders always felt that if American presidents ever became tyrants, one of the ways that would happen would be presidents taking us into wars that were not necessary. Of course, I think of the War Powers Act, which uh, is a more recent fact in in the United States, which gives Congress the power to act. When when did that come about? And I guess at what point was it just skirted? Um, That was 1973-74. And what happened was America had been in the Vietnam War for nine years, long after it was wildly unpopular and Americans were outraged that we were still in it. And the reason that we were in the Vietnam War was uh, based on something called the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which, as I write about in the book, was based on an incident that actually never took place. Lyndon Johnson told the Congress that there had been an attack on an American ship off of North Vietnam. Congress almost unanimously passed a resolution saying used armed force in South Asia. About two weeks later, Johnson found out that the attack was actually bad intelligence that hadn't happened. And rather than to go back to Congress and say, you know, I did this in good faith, but this you don't want a whole war based on something that never occurred, he never did that. And the result was Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon for nine years waged this war that cost almost 60,000 Americans untold Vietnamese based on something that never happened. And along comes the War Powers Act, which means that there must be a consultation of Congress within a certain period of time. There's a sort of right. clock that's set, right? Right. Uh, and if, if a president sends in forces in an engagement in another country, after a certain period of time, Congress either has to approve, and if it doesn't approve, he has to yank them out. And the problem with that is that virtually every president since then has said he doesn't think that the War Powers Act is constitutional, so basically it has not really kicked in in a very important way. You go back to the uh, first presidents of this country and their relationship with war. On whom do you think war was hardest? That is, who who is most destroyed sort of emotionally or personally by war? Well, the thing I found was almost every single one of them was, both emotionally and physically, probably Abraham Lincoln. And you've seen the pictures, Ryan, of Lincoln at the beginning of the Civil War and at the end. It was only four years, but he looks about 20 years older, doesn't he? Yeah. And the thing with Lincoln, for instance, was Lincoln did not want to distance himself from the people who were being killed. And there had to be a new national cemetery because so many Union soldiers were getting slaughtered. And Lincoln said, put it across the street from my summer house. This will drive me crazy. But I, every day, I want to see those Union graves being dug so that I can feel emotionally the consequence of these terrible decisions I'm making. What an anecdote. How did you find that? 
that's in the the Lincoln records of the people who spoke to Lincoln. And actually, I went to the cemetery and also went to his summer house. And it shows that Lincoln not only had empathy, but he also felt it was very important, which I think you and I would agree with, that if you're a war president, you not look at these soldiers in too abstract a way. In contrast to that, Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War said, I don't want to get too emotionally involved. I want to look at this almost like a chess game. Lincoln would have been horrified. We've had the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, constant questions about how long those should go on, what our troop presence should be. Is there a moment in history that speaks to the current moment most applicably, do you think? I think one of them is that Congress should be involved in these things as much as possible from the very start. Because, as you know, in the Constitution it says, the president wants a war, he's got to go to Congress, and Congress has to declare the war. Yet, the last time Congress declared war was 1942, in the middle of World War II. And the result of that has been that, you know, Truman said it would take too much time, and Johnson wanted to wage his war based on a resolution. And ever since then, presidents have not gone to Congress and asked for a war declaration. I think they should go back to that if they really feel that strongly, because members of Congress can say, all right, you know, what is the worst case that might happen? They can say how popular the war might be in their districts or in their states. I think if that had happened with Lyndon Johnson, he might have been a little bit less quick to get deeply involved in Vietnam. What war in American history, uh, do you think deserves more attention? Uh, I think probably World War II, because it has so much effect on what's happening nowadays. More more attention. I feel like that's one of the wars that gets the most. I mean, gets written about all the time. Yeah. But 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt almost could not take us into war because Americans said, we remember Woodrow Wilson and World War I, killed 106,000 Americans, never achieved a League of Nations, never ended, wasn't a war to end all wars, and we're not going to ever let a president have that happen again. And as a result, Roosevelt had to go to extreme lengths to make it possible for Americans to support involvement in a war against Hitler and the imperial Japanese. And the result of that was that because people thought that Roosevelt was so right, that is the reason why during the decades after World War II, Americans have been so eager to give presidents so much power to make war. Ah, so that plants some important seeds. Right, and it, and it deprives the system of the wisdom of Congress, which is exactly what the founders wanted. They wanted Congress to make these decisions, not presidents. It's interesting, a, a detail, um, I, I think that's in your book, which is that during World War II, we never really bombed concentration camps, did we? I mean, obviously, there were civilians there, but uh, there was never an elimination of them during the in war. In 1944, Roosevelt, as I write about, was urged to do that, and he ruled against it. He said, you'll be killing the people in the camps, we won't be able to help very much, and also we will be distracted from the central war aim of unconditional surrender of Germany. I disagree with that. I think that at the very least it would have put America on the record for all time saying we understand that the Holocaust is something that we have not seen before in human history. We're speaking with the presidential historian Michael Beschloss, whose latest book is Presidents of War. And there's a write-up in the New York Times, a review of your book, and uh, I just want to read this to you. Some of the more titillating tidbits 
or in the footnotes, uh, that uh, Polk had urinary stones requiring removal, which left him perhaps without sexual function. Theodore Roosevelt regretted that he didn't have a crisis dramatic enough to fully demonstrate his leadership potential. Teddy Roosevelt wanted a test. He did want a test, and he was a great man, but that maybe is not one of the great things about him. (laughs) And Lincoln, of all people, may have contracted syphilis in the mid-1830s, which he then... Uh, Lincoln actually thought he did. He told that to his roommate, Joshua Speed, and he told Speed exactly where he thought he had contracted it and from whom, which was a woman of ill Ill repute, as they would call them in those days. And Lincoln actually thought that that might be something that he had transmitted to his wife and children, and that it might have been the reason why Mary Lincoln had such emotional problems and why two of his children died prematurely during his lifetime. One reason I think he was so depressed. Oh, well, just a, an encouragement sometimes to read the footnotes. Uh, right, bef- right, absolutely. <laughs> Before we go, Michael Beschloss, what is a question about war that you you didn't get a satisfying enough answer to? Because for so many of these stories, witnesses are not alive. Yeah, I think in Lyndon Johnson's case, why this guy who was so, con- you know, understood public opinion so well, understood what things the voters would accept and what things they would not accept, why against all of that, he still said, I have to pursue this Vietnam War that is not working for years after it was pretty clear that we were not going to win. I wish I could have gone back in time and asked him. Thank you for your time. Delighted. Thank you so much, Ryan. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss has written Presidents of War. He's speaking in May as part of the Denver Post's Pen and Podium series, which apparently is sold out, so it's good you heard him here. And we'll be back in the next half hour with an update on Colorado's spaceport. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The final frontier is calling, and Colorado is apparently ready to answer. Front Range Airport is now licensed for commercial space flight. It is officially the Colorado Air and Space Port, one of 12 across the country. Its director, Dave Rupel, joined my colleague Avery Lill. Hi, Dave. Hi, Avery. It has been a long journey to earn the title. The Higginlooper administration first applied for designation as a proposed spaceport state in 2011. And now that the state officially has a spaceport, what needs to happen before the first launch? You know, it's uh, this is where the real work begins. There's there's a couple of things. One, the technology has to get to the point that it'll work at our particular spaceport. And I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, the types of companies that will use that technology to get into at least a suborbital space 
uh, have to get to that point where they're comfortable with using that technology. So there are a few of those little leaps that you have to go through, but those are coming. I, I think you can look at companies like Virgin Galactic, who will be getting their commercial license for their Unity spacecraft this year. And they're a type of technology that could conceivably operate here. The main thing that has to happen is that they just have to get to a point where there are enough operations, enough experience with the different types of technology that we can start using that technology here and and get somebody licensed to actually operate here. And that'll come. And in the meantime, Front Range is still functioning as a commuter airport for small planes. Are you expecting those flights to continue alongside flights to space? You bet. And I think that's uh, one of the unique pieces for facilities like ours. There are, of the 12 that you mentioned, of the 12 spaceports, there are eight of them that are what are considered dual-use facilities like we are. So they're an airport and a spaceport. The advantage from the spaceport perspective is that you already have most of the infrastructure that you need to be able to operate. Space is really just a continuation of what we've been doing with aviation, especially for horizontal launch type space travel. You know, I also think that in the short run for a dual use facility, that really helps pay the bills. And it's worth mentioning that rockets are not going to be lifting off vertically in Colorado. Can you describe what a launch from the spaceport is going to look like? Sure, you bet. And I think that's a great point. I think there still is some concern uh, with folks that we're going to be launching an Atlas V out there or something like that, and that's just not going to happen. What you'll see is really not a lot different than what you see on a daily basis. The horizontal launch type spacecraft that we're talking about are space planes. They operate in the air similar to a business jet. They're about the size of a medium-sized business jet. So what you're going to see on the ground is maybe a little more activity around a particular flight because we'll have to to do things a little bit differently from an operational standpoint. But really, it'll look like a business jet that's taxiing out to the runway and taking off. They'll fly off to a special use airspace that's about 50 miles away. They'll conduct their space activities. When they come back into the atmosphere after they're completed, they'll descend back down to aviation altitudes and fly like an airplane back to the airport and land looking just like any other airplane, except that they'll have a rocket engine on the back. So it's going to look a lot like an airplane taking off. What about the noise? You bet. That's certainly a concern. Uh, But again, with the type of vehicle that we're looking at, they take off on jet engines, which we already have aircraft taking off every day on jet engines. That part of it's really no different. Uh, Where we do have to be concerned about the noise a little more is in the special use airspace because they will be engaging the rocket engine. They will be breaking the sound barrier and uh, both when they go up and when they come down. Uh, So we evaluate all of that as well. But I think the key there is realizing that when they engage the rocket engine, they're actually at about 50,000 feet. So they're very high. So that noise has to travel a long distance. Plus, they're traveling up towards space at that point when the first breaking of the sound barrier occurs. So that noise is traveling in that direction, too, uh, for the most part. So there's really not a lot of noise that reaches the ground in those situations. And when they come back in, they break the sound barrier again as they're coming back into the air. But again, they're up extremely high. At that point, they're breaking the sound barrier someplace between 50,000 feet and 150,000 feet. And our evaluations indicated that what we would see on the ground from a noise perspective out there even was about what you'd hear from a thunderstorm. So, you know, not glass rattling types of uh, sonic booms or anything like that. And you touched on it earlier. These space planes that we're talking about, they don't exist yet or they're not licensed yet. How far out are we from seeing them? 
You know, there's two parts to that answer. You know, I think if we're looking at specifically the one that we're licensed for, which is what's called a Concept X vehicle, a dual propulsion type vehicle, that one I would say optimistically is probably five to eight years out, uh, mainly because uh, while there are a couple of companies that are working on them and are developing prototypes, they don't have an operational prototype yet. So it takes a while to go through the licensing but the other part of the answer is that, as I mentioned before, Virgin Galactic is going to be getting their license this year. If they wanted to operate at Colorado Air and Spaceport, uh, they'd have to go through an additional licensing process, which could take anywhere from two to three years for them to complete. So conceivably, we could have that operation occurring at the Air and Spaceport as early as two or three years from now. It sounds like what you're saying is part of operating a spaceport is attracting companies to use the facilities. You already have one company on site, Reaction Engines. Tell me more about what they're doing. Sure. That's a very exciting company. So there are a couple of parts of what they're working on. At the Air and Spaceport right now, they have a, a special testing facility to evaluate their new engine type. And they're developing a, a hybrid engine that has both jet engine capabilities and rocket engine capabilities. They're very excited about being able to get this technology working and to have this engine available not only for their space plane, but also for use within the atmosphere as well. So the technology that they're working on could at some point be in the planes taking off from Colorado. Yes, it's, uh, it's revolutionary technology. It'll really make a big difference. And as you're looking to attract other companies, is Colorado Spaceport targeting a particular niche? We are. You know, I think uh, in addition to the aviation companies that we'd always like to see and that we continue to pursue, uh, you know, we're very interested in attracting this aerospace niche, the, the kind of the new space part of that. Some of them are companies that develop the technology for the vehicles. Uh, some of them are research organizations. Uh, there are others that are, are working on resource, space resource development and, and things like that. But if we can attract those companies, we feel like the ability to gain some out of each of those sectors then creates this uh, self-sufficient aerospace economy that can support itself and can also support these future launch service providers going forward. And I think you called it new space. What does that mean? You know, it's just one uh, reference to commercial space. And I think it's it's partly because there's so much new stuff that's going on in commercial space right now. And I think there are a lot of things that, that even 10 years ago we thought about as being part of science fiction that companies are actively working on today. Uh, you know, whether it's industrial uses for space, where they're looking at making things in space to use on Earth, uh, whether it's resource collection in space, there are uses in space that are, are now being pursued and developed that just a few years ago we'd have, we'd have never thought of. That's so interesting. There are 11 other spaceports in the United States. How would you respond to those who say that the development of spaceports is outpacing the need? You know, I think that's that's probably a fair statement right now. Uh, but I think the interesting thing is that even when you look at airports, what you realize is that uh, no two airports are the same. And we have a lot of airports. There's a couple of important areas of value, though, one of them is the value to the community. And in Colorado, that's a big deal when you're talking about a state that has the, the number one per capita aerospace economy in the country. You know, it makes a difference when we have something that can support that kind of an economy. 
The, the other thing is that we're all different. So when you look at those 11 spaceports, uh, we're not all in the same kind of an environment. Some of them are located out in the middle of nowhere, like Mojave, that is an exceptional place for research and development. And they're doing some incredible things there. But they're out in the middle of nowhere. And so it's a challenge for them when they try to bring in companies to locate there to use their facility. For us, on the other hand, I look at our opportunity really as being the commercial piece of it. Once the those technologies are uh, actually licensed and able to start uh, conducting commercial operations, then you want them to be close to where their customers are. And guess what? Colorado's full of customers for those, uh, those new technologies and that commercial space opportunities. And another piece of this particular to Colorado, I think, is that Air Force Space Command headquarters is here. And so is the North American Aerospace Defense Command. How do you see the presence of military space operations in the state shaping the future of the Colorado spaceport? Oh, it has a huge impact uh, just on the space economy in Colorado, period. I think 80 percent of the contracts that are let to the companies that exist in Colorado that are in aerospace are from military, from DOD. There's probably not a whole lot that we can do directly with DOD space right now. There could be some opportunities in the future as they develop their own horizontal launch. And then turning to space tourism. It is so fun to dream that the average citizen could become an astronaut. You mentioned Virgin Galactic, and there's some hope that they could be involved in Colorado in the future. They're planning to launch customers into space at the end of the year, but they've sold seats to the tune of about $250,000. What do you think it will take to bring that price down? You know, I think it's like anything else. The more it gets used as they develop those technologies and they have larger space planes, uh, things like that, you'll see you'll see that price come down. And, and I think actually that's part of the goal for those companies. When you look at space tourism, I think it's, it's one of those things that seems a little crazy to most of us who don't have an extra $250,000 or something uh, in their pocket. But there are, I think, around 700 people, something like that, that have already purchased tickets with Virgin Galactic to go on their space tourism flights. But I think probably the most important thing is that, you know, they are transportation companies at heart. If your future goal is this point-to-point travel idea, you want to make sure you're doing that right. Being able to carry people in the space tourism realm, they call them participants instead of passengers. So those participants then are helping them to understand how they can do that passenger mission better. Are the seats right? Are they working well? Do the people Are the people comfortable in that environment? So do how do we incorporate those lessons we learn from space tourism into the next generation of vehicles which are used for point-to-point travel and things like that? So I think it, it serves a purpose and it's an important piece of the process. Do you think that there will be a time when point-to-point travel via space is more accessible? I do. I do. And I'm counting on it because I'm going to take one of those flights if I can. That's a really exciting opportunity. And I think when you look at, if you look at how long it takes you to fly around the world today, you can go to, if you've got a meeting in Tokyo, you can be there in, I think it's about 12 hours, something like that for that flight. For a business class seat, it'll cost you between seven and $10,000, something like that. But if you're one hour meeting in Tokyo, you're going to take three days for that meeting, a day to get out there, a day to get back and a day to recover and do your meeting in between. So there is definitely business interest out there in going fast and getting to places faster. So this is just the next step in that. When you look at at space, you know, flying space planes and going through suborbital space to get to those places, 
Now you're looking at something where you go down to the Colorado Air and Spaceport, you climb on your space plane, it's an hour and a half to Tokyo, you have your meeting and you're home in time for dinner. And I think the price point, they're already looking at that price point being uh, maybe a little more than what you're paying for a first-class ticket. But, uh, you know, if you're a business and you're looking at that, that maybe makes some sense if you can do it in a day instead of three days. And I think certainly in the long run, these things, instead of being kind of special things that happen at spaceports and they're they're really specialized, those will become part of the normal transportation system down the road, maybe a couple of decades out, that kind of thing. Thank you for being here, Dave. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Dave Ruppel directs the Colorado Air and Spaceport in Watkins, east of Denver. He spoke with CPR's Avery Lill. Chronic leaks at the Air Force Academy's chapel won't be permanently fixed anytime soon. Nearly $70 million to repair the Colorado Springs landmark will be diverted to fix hurricane damage at an Air Force base in Florida. While the reallocation is understandable, it's a setback for the chapel, which has leaked since its dedication in 1963. I learned that firsthand when I visited the chapel on its 50th anniversary. This building has become an architectural icon, and it's also one of Colorado's top tourist attractions, but it almost wasn't built. Here to tell us about the chapel's story is Dwayne Boyle. He is the Academy's resident architect and preservationist. And thank you so much, Dwayne, for meeting us here. It's a pleasure to be here. We're on the choir loft, and uh, above us is the organ. Below us are the pews some of which are covered in tarps. It's a rainy day and the building leaks. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But, you know, I've, I've brought so many family members and friends here to show this place off. What do, you, what do you feel when you're standing inside this chapel? I think that just like the first uh, trip everybody makes to the chapel, you're always inspired by the, uh, the design of the chapel and the space that it creates inside. And it's just an iconic building that we're very proud of. I've always thought it was the perfect blend of the religious. You've got stained glass. You've, of course, got the pews and the altar. Uh, a blend of that and a blend of uh, aviation. You know, with the aluminum, you, you have a, a sense that you're surrounded almost by airplane wings. Do you think that's true? It is. Obviously, uh, the use of aluminum is a major material here at the Air Force Academy, and it would seem uh, inappropriate to have built the chapel out of anything else. There, at one point in time, there was a push to try and use brick on the exterior of the Cadet Chapel, which would have been very incompatible with everything else uh, in the Cadet area itself. The architect uh, was a man named Walter Netsch, and he also designed the other buildings at the Academy uh, here in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit about Walter Netsch. Walter Netsch was a very, very bold architect. Uh, and that's the reason you see bold architecture, and certainly represented here in the Cadet Chapel. What were your impressions of him? You, you met him. I met him, and I spent uh, quite a lot of time with him over several years, uh, both here at the Academy and uh, in Chicago. He was very easy to get along with, I thought. Uh, I didn't think he lived up to his reputation of being brash, although I'm sure that uh, he probably could be that way at times. Uh, he certainly stood up for what he thought was the right thing to do. If he didn't, we wouldn't have this chapel. And Walter was one of the people who carried this design on the road and sold it. Uh, so the fact that he could be brash, I think, is a good thing, but I never saw it. 
I'll note that uh, Walter Netsch died in 2008. Well, this building was not Netsch's first design for the Academy Chapel, was it? No. Early designs of the uh, cadet area included just basically massing models of what a chapel might look like on a particular site within the cadet area. And that eventually grew to uh, what was a fairly serious design of the cadet chapel, which was a folded plate concrete building. Folded plate concrete. Right. Okay. And reactions to this were strong. There was a lot of criticism for it. You've actually provided us an image of the first design for a chapel that Walter Netsch came up with. We'll post an image of it to CPR.org. And uh, reactions included this from then-Governor Edwin Johnson, governor of Colorado. The paganistic distortion conceived as a place of religion is an insult to religion and Colorado, he said. (laughs) Yes. And there were other reactions like that. A senator in 1955 said of the original design, everything looks fine except that chapel. I don't hear the rustle of angels' wings. But Netsch didn't want to design something that looked like a traditional uh, church or chapel, did he? No, he didn't. And I think part of the issue back then uh, was where the world of architecture was at at that point in time. International-style modernism was pretty well accepted, But when it came to a religious structure, there was a lot of interest in how you could actually do a religious structure in a modernist style. Hmm. And uh, I think in today's world, you wouldn't have that same problem. But back then, it was a very new concept. And I think that generated a lot of the uh, criticism because people were not making the transition from traditional uh, religious architecture to modernist religious architecture. Right. Modernist was okay for an office building, but it was, it was less clear what you did for a religious structure. So he went back to the drawing table, Walter Netsch, and uh, I understand studied uh, religious structures in Europe and came back with a new design. Tell us about that. The main point in doing that was to study uh, religious architecture there to determine what elements of that he could bring back and possibly include in his design of the cadet chapel at the Air Force Academy. What were some of the, the edifices that he studied? Well, there's really four main ones. One was uh, Saint-Chapelle, which was the quality of the light coming into the building. Hmm. Uh, Notre Dame, which was the uh, structure, flying buttresses on the outside of the building, sure. plus the proportion of space. Chart, which was the uh, structure on the outside of the building, again, with the flying buttresses. And also the uh, Basilica of San Francisco de Sisi, which was, it is a uh, complex of more than one chapel, as is Saint-Chapelle. And Walter had always questioned whether you could really include more than one chapel in one building and successfully do it. And, and he, he did, in, in fact, with the building we're standing in. You have the large chapel above, and then you've got other religious spaces, for instance, of the, for those of the Jewish faith, the Catholic faith below. Right. And it was his visit to Europe, to Saint-Chapelle and Assisi, that uh, convinced him that it could be done successfully. Hmm. So he goes back to the drawing board, and how controversial was the design for this building? This building was controversial uh, not only because of its design, but because of its cost. Okay. The building was originally uh, supposed to be funded about $4 million. Congress, partially because of controversies surrounding it, uh, cut the budget down to around $2.5 million. Ultimately, it ended up costing about $3.2, $3.3 million to build. But the, once again, the design of it was very controversial, the modernist aspects of it. Yeah, once again, it rustled feathers. What, what was it about the building specifically that people objected to? I think the configuration, the way the spires are done, uh, 
more traditional chapels may have had one spire. Why does this have 17 spires? The shape of the spires uh, look like missiles, upended air, aircraft ready to take off, things like that. Of course, that sounds uh, was, perfect to me for an Air Force Academy chapel. Yeah, but. Right. It had a, a military type of a, a look to it, or people could perceive it as having a military type of look to it. And that was part of the controversy, that it still didn't have that traditional look of what people thought a chapel should be. You mentioned, uh, Dwayne Boyle, that um, cost was an issue, and one cost savings has resulted in a rather leaky structure. And we stand here today on a pretty rainy day. Tell us about this this decision. Well, there were budget problems with the chapel. There was a number of uh, things that were done to reduce the cost. Uh, for instance, the chapel originally had 21 spires. It was cut to 19 and then down to 17 because of budget. But that didn't cut the budget enough. And uh, so the uh, Air Force looked at doing different things. And one of those was to eliminate some internal flashings from the design that were meant to carry water out of the structure okay. in favor of using caulking. That did save some money. But the problem is that this building has 32 miles of caulking on it now. 32 miles? 32 miles. And how often does that need to be replaced or updated or filled in? Well, there's a constant program here at the Academy to re-caulk a number of spires. It's either every year, maybe every two years, uh, at significant cost, not only from, for the caulking, but to repair the water damage to the inside of the chapel from when it does leak. And currently, where we're standing on the choir loft, we're next to the uh, uh, organ, and we now have water damage in the organ. We're looking down onto the uh, pews, and there's uh, warped wood on the pews, and water puddles on the uh, floor, and a lot of wet plaster on the spires. So the, the cost of making that change was significant. It makes me wonder if you've now spent more fixing the leaks than you would have spent or the government would have spent on those original uh, designs to make it uh, more waterproof. I suspect that's true. I don't have the figures, but I, I suspect we've spent more on caulking projects than what the chapel originally cost altogether. But I have to say, in all fairness, uh, this was a very unique building, and nobody understood at that time what the real impact of removing those internal flashings was going to be. Hmm. Nobody purposely removed them, thinking there was going to be a risk of massive leaks. When I look at, at the, the bones of this building from the inside, I can't help but wonder if it, if it doesn't kind of expand and contract or have some, something of a, I don't know, a life of its own. You know, the, the way that it's assembled makes me feel that it almost has joints. Does that make sense? It does. And then this building is actually a modular building. Oh, really? A very elaborate modular building. The structure of this building is 100 tetrahedrons. And those are all built off-site, brought in on rail cars, and assembled on-site. Huh. So what you see with all the joints are the intersections of where the tetrahedrons are. And the building does move quite significantly. It's not a structural problem. It's not going to cause any safety issues, but it does move extensively. And that's part of the problem with uh, trying to make sealants last for any particular length of time. I see. And, and so on a windy day, do you have some sense of its uh, breathability? <laughs> uh, it pops and crackles on a windy day. Yeah. It's become part of the character of the building, I think. <laughs> right. After a certain point, flaws become character. You know, Duane, I was reading some old articles about the chapel, and I came across an AP story about the dedication ceremony on September 22, 1963. And the article said the chapel was supposed to open for the graduation uh, in 1963, in June, at which President Kennedy was principal speaker. But the leaky roof kept the building closed. Do you know that story? I don't. 
but, <laughs> but it doesn't surprise you. It doesn't surprise me. It's been a problem, uh, apparently, from uh, early on in its history. You know, there was a poll done by the American Institute of Architects to determine the country's 150 favorite works of architecture. And uh, the Cadet Chapel came in at number 51. Uh, what does it say to you that a building so steeped in controversy at the beginning has really become such a treasure? Well, I think it's a tribute to Walter's genius, because the fact that it was controversial isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's much worse if people don't have an opinion about it. Right, something Then you haven't really unnoticed. accomplished anything or what you set out to accomplish. So the fact that it was controversial and evoked strong feelings originally, it, I think, is good. I think the fact that today people accept it as one of the most iconic buildings in the country is good. It, it accomplished what Walter set out to do. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure to be here. Dwayne Boyle is the campus architect at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. We spoke when the Cadet Chapel turned 50. That was back in 2013. The chapel was scheduled to close in June for repairs, but again, that project's on hold. The money has been reallocated to fix hurricane damage at a base in Florida. The chapel is one of 61 Air Force projects that just lost funding. And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.